Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. It is finally time to preview the 2021 U.S. Open. Sans Federer, no Nadal, but a Novak Djokovic going for a monumental, historic feat. The Grand Slam, something that has been done by only two men, Rod Laver and Don Budge. And Joel, I want to start with you because you've been doing a lot of exploration into Don Budge, the first man to do it, uh, giving us a a full historical scope of of what Novak is trying to do here. Where has that exploration brought you? Well, I've been spending time, I've spent about 50 years studying Don Budge. And one thing is I live about two miles from where he learned to play in Oakland. I play at a club where he played extensively in Berkeley. I work my, the person I take lessons from worked with Don Budge's coach. So I know a lot about Don Budge. And also, as far as these great slammers go, a lot is known about Laver. We hear a lot of Laver love. There's the Laver Cup. He's alive. He's visible. He's present. People like Roger Federer and Pete Sampras, John Macron, and Martina Navratilova, they all talk about the Laver influence on them. And there's enough YouTube clips around to see Laver, kind of this incredibly accurate, artistic, lefty angles, spins, paces, um, this game. So Budge, now we're going way back to 1938. But if you look at it, Budge played a lot like Novak. He was known for heavy duty, deep ground strokes, a tremendous backhand that he taught himself from a lefty baseball swing. That was a, the first drive backhand. If you watch the Budge backhand, you would see fingerprints of it left on Roger Federer or even Gasquet or some of the great one-handers, and also some of the two-handers, because it was very compact stroke, and you could see how it led to Connors, uh, Andre Agassi, and Novak. So you've got these games that are based on kind of a thundering baseline power. That's fascinating, and uh, we're going to move forward and and look at Novak's draw later in the show, but when it comes to um, the Grand Slam, let's just continue exploring that. Well, I'll Um, tell you a little more things about, if I get to look at Budge, to look at Budge and Novak, and I wrote about this in a, in a tennis.com story about how these were guys who each had great backhands and they each had to fix their forehand. Budge won the US National 18s with a Western grip because that was why it's, it's called the Western grip because it was used in California. California courts used to be high bouncing. So they had this Western grip. And this local teacher in Oakland, Tom Stowe, told Budge, you know, if you want to win the big tournaments on the low bouncing grass courts, of Wimbledon, Forest Hills, which is the US championships, you gotta learn an Easter grip. You gotta hit, be able to deal with lower balls. So he changed his forehand, just like how Novak, remember how Novak in his career's forehand wasn't quite as reliable and he changed his forehand. So you got that going on. Then you have a stage where, um, where just like Novak had the fitness change where he went from, we went to cut out the gluten and then he became number one. And this was after Novak had been number three in the world, kind of not quite there, budge. One year he lost the U.S. final. He was serving at 5-3 in the fifth set and his stamina had betrayed him because 
early in the tournament, he liked to go out for a little chocolate milkshake every night with his good friend and doubles partner, Gene Mako. And he noticed in the middle of the tournament, oh my God, the sugar has just sat me. And he finally fell apart in the final serving versus Fred Perry. That was trying to win his first major. In the wake of that, Budge vowed no sweets, no fried foods, no confections. And he started running the Berkeley Hills to get in shape. So they each had this, this fitness thing. And then the final piece, the final piece, which is really neat, Budge is, it's January, 1937. And Budge is kind of the heir apparent next great amateur. Fred Perry has turned pro. He's playing Ellsworth Vines. And Budge, they make, they have Budge be the chair umpire to, for this match. And Budge watches Ellsworth Vines stand a few feet behind the baseline and crack ground strokes. Watches Fred Perry on the baseline, kind of absorbing and redirecting. And he thinks, well, Vines is gonna kill Perry. Perry wins. And Budge goes, well, wait a second. What if I could hit the ball as hard as Vines and as early as Perry, if I could do both? Presto. And then Budge from there, he ended up winning about 92 straight matches in 1937 and wow. 38. He won all four majors in 38. He was, he was a wrecking crew for those years and well into the 40s. And so the connection to him and Novak, I mean, I read numerous things of Budge's opponents feeling helpless. Like, how am I going to win a point from this guy? And that's what makes you think of Novak. And that segues into kind of um, our talk about Novak and the U.S. Open. I mean, you look at Novak, where his game is at. How do you, how do you win multiple points against this guy? I, I think we'd kind of be remiss if we didn't at least mention Steffi Graf in this. Mm -hmm. And I know so many fans out there view men's and women's tennis as completely separate sports. I mean, I have friends that refuse to even watch women's tennis. And I know some people that prefer watching the women's game, but what Steffi did winning the Golden Slam, all four Grand Slams and the Olympic gold medal, it was 1988. She was, I believe, 19 years old. And these were kind of my formative years. So I, I was like watching her a lot um, trying to understand her game. You know, she had this beautiful slice, a one-handed backhand, and was just um, very classy in the way that she moved and um, very at ease. And uh, that year just really dominated. And uh, there are some things about her game that remind me of Novak's game. Well, that's fascinating. And she, she lost two matches that year. And the Golden Slam, one of the neat things for her, the Olympics was after the US Open that year. So that was a little different calendar and it was in Seoul, Korea. And, and I, think, I think I could see your connection to her Novak um, with the oppression, the smothering, the movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a, there's an energy she brought that Novak seems a little more methodical, but there was a way that she just kind of took charge of these matches and just, Brutalized people, absolutely. I mean, and, and thoroughly dominant. I mean, again, two matches lost all year. That's an incredible year. I'm interested in the the climate around both Don Budge and and Steffi could definitely be included because I'm brought back to uh, Serena, who went to New York and went for the Grand Slam and lost to Roberta Vinci in the semifinal. Uh, was it 2014? 15. 15. 15. 15. Um, 
look, I think there was a ton of pressure on Serena, the pressure, the, the weight of the world. And I think to some extent, now Novak's not in his home country like Serena was, but to some extent, uh, all eyes are on Novak, especially with Roger and Rafa not there to take a little bit of that attention away. I wonder how different it was for Steffi and, and Don Budge. Well, I think in Serena's case, I think in Serena was more, there's the home country and also the bandwidth of sports. I mean, Novak in its odd, odd way, I wouldn't say he's under the radar, but he's during the pandemic. So our, our, our eyeball attention for sports isn't quite exactly what it was even in 2015 when Serena was going for it. Serena's was, yeah, that was big. And Serena's cross-cultural status, I mean, she's such a global icon. Um, Graf, I recall, I don't know what you recall, Amy, I think there was a fair amount of exposure and intrigue around that, even though it seemed like a foregone conclusion. I don't know. What do you recall from that? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the hype in sports generally has just grown over time. And so Novak kind of has that working against him. I mean, pretty much everybody on the planet is aware of what he's trying to do. But I think you're right. Um, the fact that we are in a pandemic and these news stories related to sports and society and the pandemic are emerging like by the minute. So that kind of takes the heat off of him. I mean, he'll be asked about these things, but I guess what I'm trying to say is the only story is not Novak going for the calendar slam, but as the tournament progresses, if he's still in it, that will intensify. If you want to go way story. back to Budge, going back uh, 80, 80 years, it's a different world because it didn't even exist. I don't know. I think we've, we've covered this maybe before, and I'll just get it briefly. Uh, a guy named Jack Crawford had won Australia, France, and Wimbledon. And when he was in the U.S. finals, a rider said he could now complete, using a bridge term, a grand slam of the four nations that have won Davis Cup. So this wasn't an ITF or an ILTF decree of slam status. This was uh, something created that was almost like a fanciful nugget of, because Davis Cup was the biggest deal in the sport then. Davis Cup was more important. And so, so what Budge hadn't even done it, and he, didn't, he only told one person, his doubles partner and good friend, Gene Mako, that I'm going to do that. I'm going to try to win all four of those titles in 38. And that upon doing it, he said, now I have completed the Grand Slam. But there wasn't like, a, and again, the whole sense of media coverage and even the sport. I mean, check this out. Uh, okay, so Novak, he's in Monte Carlo on one day. And what, within 48 hours, he's in Australia practicing? Is that about right? 48 hours, 72 hours when he goes there? Yeah. Don Budge. How do you think Don Budge got to Australia? By ship? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Three weeks, my friend. Three wow. Weeks. Wow. What? Francisco. You take the boat from San Francisco to Australia. Three weeks, he and Mako on that, maybe throwing the medicine ball around a little bit. Hanging in steerage? Out. Nah, <laughs> probably not in steerage. But, and then three weeks back. So think about that. Wow. Three weeks back. Wow. So it was all a little different. And then even you look, and then even forward to like labor in 69, white balls, wood rackets, grass courts, no... Uh, no tiebreakers, no sitting on changeovers, playout sets. Um, Laver, Laver, won a, Laver won a match, but he won his Grand Slam. Check out this score. 7-5, 
That's four sets in one <laughs> six. That's with Tony Roach. And it's wow. all, and I think, I think they served and volleyed up every one of their first and second serves. I mean, so it's <laughs> like a whole, it's the science fiction. I mean, yeah. and, and, and yeah. the whole, all this different kind of world. So each era, a little bit different. And Novak, um, yeah, fascinating. I mean, it, I, I, um, it'll be really interesting to see how, how that all shakes. Well, I'm sure they, they all felt pressure to some extent. Novak was asked about it in his press conference. He said, I thrive under pressure. He repeated the Billie Jean King quote, pressure is a privilege. Uh, and I think you can't even make an argument after he began his career struggling in the major finals. Since then, he's been incredible in them. And especially post uh, the 2017 uh, elbow hiatus, uh, he has been especially uh, great under pressure at every stage, every epic match that he's played, he's pretty much come through the victor uh, since then. So yeah, he's he's handled pressure incredibly well. How do we think he does that? What What's the secret for Djokovic under pressure? Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Preparation. I think his whole belief in how he prepares the every step. So it's kind of like I have complete faith that I've done everything possible to be in the position to compete as effectively as possible. Let myself play. I mean, John Wooden, the great UCLA basketball coach, if we fail to prepare, we prepare to fail. And I think Novak leaves nothing to chance that way. And I think he does that even more than our other two guys for various reasons. I mean, his, his approach to the game. I mean, I go back to when he was five or six years old, taking lessons and showed up with his lunch and his racket and he's just ready to go. And he's just preparation, I mean, stretching, diet, equipment, everything. I also think his game has something to do with it. Uh, no, Cause no, I think that's, he... that's what allows it. To... Right. No, no. I mean, I mean the style, I should have been more specific, not just the fact that he's good right? Because many players are good. I think the way he plays, uh, the what I'm really getting at is I think he has full and utter trust in his movement. And I think he can always, no matter how nervous he is, he trusts his movement. I've never seen it go away. 
just like I think Sampras always believed in the serve and he believed it, it could always get him out of trouble. So I just think he has that thing that never goes away. Well, so what Sampras believed in was his gunslinger ability. I mean, I know later in his career, we saw a lot about the serve. I think Sampras believed in his ability to play the clutch point, to play the clutch point, to come up with the right shot, the, re the return on the break point, the volley, and particularly, of course, the serve. I think with Novak, you're right, the movement propels him. And the movement is the full result of all that preparation, of all that stretching, of all that conditioning, of the diet, of the discipline, of all that kind of stuff that puts him in a position to be as purely effective. And it's interesting, and Novak has spoken about his, his love of Sampras, because I think Sampras, in his way, was a no stone unturned. I guess they all are to some degree, is, of course, to have everything in place to be ready to compete effectively. And Novak's ability to, 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 to know his game and to, to come up, make good decisions all the time. I mean, so often you, you rarely see him make a bad shot selection. Yeah. I think there's a cultural element to it being Serbian. You know, I was talking to my 11 year old son the other day, who's like a real geography buff and a history buff. And I said to him, just describe all the Balkans to me, like, tell me about each country. And when he got to Serbia, he said, you know, Serbians are resilient, they're persistent, they don't back down. And, and I was thinking to myself, wow, this really describes the essence of who Novak is. So I definitely think that they're the, the whole wolf thing and, the, you know, he's mentioned before what his country has gone through. Um, I, I think that's an element to um, how he, he puts it all in perspective and views pressure. Well, right, because then like there's the great story in, in Chris Clary's new book about Federer, about Novak's dad at one point putting like, what, 10 bucks on it? This is us, this is what we got, family. And so I think Novak's awareness is like pressure, pressure. I mean, and, and Tony Dallas talks about this. I mean, this whole thing, this whole way that pressure gets discussed, I mean, what does that really mean? And I think the more you prepare and the more you know your game and your movement and your strokes, it's, it's an illusion. It's like confidence, these are illusions. That doesn't mean they're not powerful. It doesn't mean they're not meaningful, but they're, they're illusions. They're just tropes of notions of ideas. I mean, so, yeah. so Novak is just able to kind of go from point to point. I mean, there's probably never been a player who's so good at just building point to point to point and being so airtight, I mean, when it matters, that knowing, wow, he's not missing. I mean, we saw that Roland Garros final when he's down two sets to love. It sure didn't seem like he was going anywhere, did it? No, it, definitely not. It seems, I think everyone knew that that match was still in the balance and that Stefano Tsitsipas had a, a monumental task in front of him to try to cross the finish line against right. Novak. Um, the environment, the U.S. Open, full crowds. Um, Wimbledon, we did see a little bit of that, but New York is a, a different kind of environment. And Novak said earlier that it was, uh, that it's probably the most fun venue in tennis. By the way, um, uh, an announcement just made before we start started recording that all fans are going to uh, to have to be vaccinated. Uh, but I always take an interest into how Novak interacts and, and how he's affected by his environment, Amy. Yeah, and this goes back to what I was saying before about how 
the story of him trying to win the calendar grand slam is sort of offset by these constantly evolving news stories some of them related to the pandemic and vaccines are front and center not just in tennis but in all sports um so um first thing I thought actually was some friends of mine have asked like can I get some tickets and some of the days for grounds passes are sold out so I was like oh well maybe those tickets will become available because people who aren't vaccinated will want to resell but um I I I, I do think that uh that there will be a full crowd because there's plenty of people in in this area that are vaccinated and um I think people will be rowdy and um, Novak has, despite what, what you might think, he has plenty of fans in this area. And uh, I think as the tournament goes on, this will build and nobody does hype like New York. And when we get to the final, if Novak's in it, um, we're going to have a real humdinger on our hands and a highly rated uh final if that happens i agree and i think novak saying that about how he likes new york i mean it's so funny i've read so many pre-tournament transcripts and part of the mission is for every player to speak to how much they admire such atmosphere and new york is has it and new york probably well each have their concepts towards it new york is the new york thing the embracing new york and and there becomes the thing that the rite of passage for the european player no novak's always done pretty well in New York. I mean, he got to the finals. This is the first slam final he ever reached in 07. And uh, I, I think he'll enjoy it and the chance to be theatrical. And I think crowds that do attend events now are bringing a certain kind of gratitude towards it. I mean, a sense like how yeah. great we get to watch a sports event. And so let's get into it. And so it'll be, I, it'll be fun to see night tennis at the US Open once again, and some match, you know, and some match is gonna happen and the one thing about Novak and the all tennis, you know, it's not like he's winning these matches one and one without being tested. They'll come points, they'll come rallies, they'll come moments, and they'll be for all, and he'll come up with something, and, and that'll be and he's really, wow, that's what tennis can really be. That's really exciting. Yeah. I think there's gonna be intense support for Novak. I think uh, I think this will be the US Open that uh, more than any other previous US Open that fans will come out for Novak. Uh, that, that's my sense. I don't have a mm -hmm. scientific explanation, but uh, uh, I, I think, Amy, you did put it well. New Yorkers love hype. And I think the people who do like Djokovic, they will be showing up because they understand what's what's happening here. With that being said, normally you're going to get two very vocal faction, factions, and that is what is fun about Arthur Ashe. It's not generally as clear cut. I, I was at the 2009 US Open final, uh, the first te tennis match I was ever at. Federer against Del Potro. And I think the, the support was 25% Del Potro, 75% Federer. Noise, 50-50. It's just how it was. Yeah, well, that's a good call. And, and also, look, yeah, New York fans will like underdogs. That doesn't mean they want them to win. They just want to see a show. They yeah. want yeah. to see something dramatic and engaging. And in some ways, at a certain level, they want, the, they want the favorite to win because they want the guy to keep advancing. And I think Novak this year, the, the evolution of the tennis story these days is that these other contenders haven't stepped up enough yet to have it seem that he's anything but the big favorite. You know, it's not as if uh, Medvedev won the, the guy who won the US Open last year, Dominic Team, he's not even playing. 
before we get to Novak's draw specifically, in a general sense, there's a good debate going on right now uh, about which players threaten Novak most. So let's see where, where we land on this. I know I, I have an answer. Amy, who do you think are Djokovic's? You could pick one player, or if you think it's it's a tie, give us multiple, you know, because, you know, there's no – either way, what are you feeling there? Who, who threatens him? It's funny. When I was doing prep for this part of our discussion, I just had this women's intuition, call it, that – he will be threatened by some player that isn't really on our radar right now that we're not talking about at some point in the tournament. That doesn't mean that I think he'll lose, but it's like the, the, the match that really challenges him might be a surprise to us. Um, but in terms of like the, the names that we all know, I think Medvedev is the one that likes this surface, this US Open surface and feeds off this crowd the most. And I would love to see that match, love to see it. And, and that would have all the energy and drama that we're craving. I think, so you're talking about the one chance being the 75 aces from Raleigh Opelka where things are just flying left and right or from some player, some other player who we don't quite know. The, the all under the radar. I mean, guy. we know them all, but, but there's, I mean, yeah. Lesser, I don't mean we don't know. I mean, lesser familiar. And suddenly it's like, wait, what's going on this, this, this Thursday night or this Saturday afternoon? What, what is happening here? Mm -hmm. And then there's the familiar cast, which we'd have to say Medvedev, Zverev, Tsitsipas. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I think even though it was a while ago, I think that Australian Open final where he beat Medvedev handily was really of value to Djokovic even though he lost to Medvedev before, but I think there's a certain part of this. Okay, I got, I kind of got this guy solved. On the other hand, Medvedev is playing so well. He was playing well, um, didn't win Cincinnati. Um, Zverev, the question is how much these guys are continuing to then improve. I think I would put Medvedev and Zverev a little ahead of Tsitsipas. I think as, as Novak threats. I mean, I think Tsitsipas, the, his game, his game is still evolving. He's putting together the pieces and the parts and the shot maker thing. I think the other guys are a little bit more in order, their games. It doesn't mean, I'm not saying they're better, but I think Tsitsipas has, has more growth ahead as to, as to forging his tennis identity. And I think uh, Zverev, who is impressive, winning Cincinnati and, and, uh, and Medvedev, I think they're a little bit more where they're going to be. So... I don't know. I don't know. What's your, what's your answer, Gil? Well, uh, first of all, I agree that Tsitsipas out of that trio is, is in third for, unless you're on clay, that changes a lot because the, the return of serve is an essential part of the game, as we know. And uh, he's just not up there with them uh, in that department. Right. So um, on, on clay, the clay erases that because now you're, the ball slowed down so much. It's not, it's a different looking return. Uh, but on a fast court, Zverev, Medvedev, and Djokovic are on a different level when it comes to the return of serve. Uh, on that note, I think it becomes pretty pretty much a matter of uh, who you trust mentally between Medvedev and Zverev. I think they do very similar things on the court. Uh, from a, a technical perspective, I think Zverev does some things better than Medvedev. But uh, as when Medvedev is not in his rattled uh, state, when he's not, I don't know, 
in a state of rage. I think he's mentally tougher than Zverev and his confidence is more bulletproof. Uh, Djokovic beat both of them in Australia earlier this year, but it would really be Medvedev for me. That's the one uh, who threatens Djokovic more than anyone else in the draw on paper. But I kind of agree with Amy that, that uh, you know, it, it's likely with Novak's lack of match play and the, the way the U.S. Open can be with the uh, horribly difficult conditions and stuff, there could be uh, there could be some danger in the earlier rounds. So that's that's how I see it shaking out. Shall we go to the draw? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, here are my impressions, uh, just real quick. Berrettini, first of all, is Djokovic's top seed, number six seed in the tournament. That would be the projected quarterfinal. The other high seed is Hubert Hercoc. Uh, then after that, you have David Gafan, Aslan Karatsev, and Alex Dimonor in Djokovic's section. That is as far as the seeds go. Now, I think Djokovic's section specifically, uh, I don't have confidence really in any of the seeds. I think Dimonor is in a 50-50 match with Fritz. I think Gafan uh, is probably an underdog in the first round against Mackenzie McDonald. Uh, I think Karatsev hasn't done enough to inspire confidence that he We'll get to Novak Djokovic. So I think a lot of these seeds we're not going to see. What, what there is in this section are dangerous and intriguing unseeded players. Uh, and I think particularly Kane Shikori is playing well, although Djokovic plays him great. Jan Lennard Struff is a potential second round. And uh, Jensen Brooksby is in there as well. I think and those he, are all, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I think those are all um, the kind of solvable guys. But Berrettini still intrigues me. I don't know. I mean, Amy, you, you, you months ago talked about Berrettini and then he gets the Wimbledon finals. So uh, I don't know. What do you, what do you make of some of this, these Novak? Um, he has not played many matches recently and I think he's been battling some injuries. So Berrettini is a real question mark for me right now. I, I mean, people don't like the Djokovic fans are going to say, no, Amy, what are you talking about? I do think that as some of his draw grand slam draws have gone, his section looks a little bit easier to me than some of his past sections have looked. Um, that doesn't mean that anybody should take anybody for granted. Um, as I told Gil, Jensen Brooksby is kind of like everybody's favorite underdog right now. Everybody's talking about him. Um, of course, Karatsev beat Novak way earlier this year in a best of three, but we haven't heard much from him recently. So I agree with Gil that it's not the seeds that are tricky here. It's the unseeded players. Alexander Zverev is the potential semifinal, but we won't go too far here at all. I'm just going to lay it out there for everyone. Uh, that, of course, means that Daniil Medvedev and uh, Stefano Tsitsipas are on the, the opposite half. Um, so we have the three. We have the three ones. So the three ones who uh, Novak threats are the other seeds. Um, but two of them are one of them is going to eliminate another, if, you know, Medvedev yes. is less on that half. Zverev, Zverev interests me tennis-wise now to For see sure. where he where he goes with his tennis because he's played fairly well and appears to be making some progression. And of course, then he was a finalist here last year. Um, haunted or liberated by that, both, and we'll see. 
and and he beat Novak at the Olympics. And, you know, it, we would be remiss if we didn't say that there's a lot of headlines surrounding him right now. And, um, you know, people aren't just robots that can separate their tennis from other aspects of their lives. So Zverev is, is um, a complicated creature in the, uh, in the draw right now. Yeah, so, well, but he's been playing well. And so, uh, and again, the finals last year, I, 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 miss, I miss team. That's one of my sad stories of the 2021 year is Agreed. not being um, Dominic yeah. here. This yeah. year, I mean, I so I enjoy I so enjoy his approach to the game. I think he's thoroughly professional and has a great game. And it just seems like he's had a he's had the really tough, uh, you know, the the Peggy Lee syndrome. Is that all there is? Yeah. Now, I, obviously, it was first mental issues and then and then physical problems to follow. Uh, but but Dominic Team is the one per player who stylistically I've always felt is actually a bad matchup for Novak. And I don't really think. I, I can't say that about anyone else. So, he, I mean, Vavrinka, you know, team and Vavrinka, they play the same way, in my opinion. And that is yes. a, a style that hurts Novak. So it's good for Djokovic that team is not a factor. That's right. Vavrinka, who beat him in the, um, in the 2016 U.S. Open final, which I believe was the last completed match, completed loss that yeah. Novak had at the U.S. Open. So that was five years ago. So Rafa is not uh, also very easy for Novak to beat. I mean, I he's know a good, he... <laughs> but but OK, but matchup wise, like the way the tactics go, I think that's actually a favorable thing for Novak. I think Novak matches up really well against Rafa on any quick court. That's right. And a non clay. Yeah. And, and so but but these one handed guys have had their moments. I mean, Rink has beat him at several majors and uh, and so his team. So that makes us think, OK, so the, the player, the player of the future who will topple Novak when he's when he finishes competing at Grand Slams nine years from now. I right. think that's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, the, you know, these guys with these one handers, these guys with movement playing very adventurous tennis. I mean, I think that what I enjoy about seeing the one handed backhand in contemporary tennis, it's the player who does that knows he needs to play very dynamically. You know, that's why, like, I see some other players like Nishikori, Gofan, they're just, like, cut from the same cloth as Novak. They're, like, lesser Novaks, mm -hmm. how they play. But then you see someone like Rorinka. I mean, I remember sitting, I was at that French final when he beat Djokovic. It's unbelievable. It's like, he knows he's going to be taking cuts and swinging. He's not going to get in rallies. You're not going to, the one-hander versus the two-hander in the rally is not good math. So the one-hander's got to break up that pattern as soon as they can see it. I mean, is Gustavo, if Gustavo Quirton taught us anything, it's the dynamic use of the one-hander. Well, you got to, I mean, there, there's a certain level of heaviness that, that they can get with the one-hander that uh, I don't think any two-hander can get. Yannick Sinner's starting to make me think about the, the possibilities of how powerful a two-hander can be. But uh, as far as that is concerned, generally speaking, nobody can hit a backhand as heavy as Vavrinka and team. Well, but it has to do with deployment more than necessarily inherent attribute because we know the inherent attributes of the two-hander are often better than the two-hander. So it's like my point about the one-hander, and it's funny, and this even goes back to Don Budge, who created the first drive one-handed backhand, is if you're going to have it, it better be one big piece of artillery. And the one-handers who've endured over, you know, it's not going to be just kind of like a, a mildly steady shot. You better be ready to, to swing it. Yeah, have. but I, I think it's physiological, though, if I if I may say, I think it's okay. a physiological thing that the one hand, just like the men's forehand is 
almost always bigger, I think the one-hander is capable of, of more racket speed. Well, we're seeing it. Now, it would be interesting to see, you're right, if it's, if it's organized, if it's, yeah. if it's built. And this gets to some real interesting um, development, player development issues of how people go about building a game and what it means to have a one-hander for a, for a pro-level player. Yeah, that's a very interesting thing. I just, I don't think all one-handed backhands are monolithic. You know, they're, they're all different. They all have different spins and some of them are flatter and, and all that, but um, point taken. But I think in the pro game, I think at the pro level, at the world-class level, if a player is going to have, a, if his player is going to trot out a one-handed backhand into that world, it better be a whopper. Well, I mean, I, I think James Blake, who's always charmingly self-deprecating about his backhand, would say that he, his, the best thing about his backhand was that he just tried never to hit it. Well, right. <laughs> that's true. And, and, and that's right. And, and James Blake, you got to hand it to him for getting. And, and Stevie Johnson, too, with his slice. You got to hand it to those guys. James Blake, who gets to four in the world with that. That's right. So, but I wonder if Blake would know. Blake might have been. It, it, it's not. He didn't try to. He didn't try to. Yeah, a great possible one-hander. His is not the case for yeah. the for the one-hander in, in contemporary tennis. Okay, well, um, Novak has a two-hander. What are we doing here? Uh, no, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's, well, let's... I, I, it is applicable because we've got Tsitsipas as a major contender here. So yeah, it, it does true. apply, you know. Go with <laughs> us, Gil, go with <laughs> us. <laughs> uh, let's end on... on keys for Novak Djokovic. And just to recap, I've found it so fascinating that that all three majors, although it's been the same champion, it has been uh, a different story for Novak each time. We talked so much about his serve in Australia. We talked so much about his forehand in Paris. And then we talked a lot about his volleys uh, in Wimbledon as, as he really started to lean on finishing the points at the net. So let's predict uh, a key. What would be a key for Novak Djokovic in order to lift the trophy in New York? Let's start with you, Amy. He's such a chameleon. Now that you mentioned the volleys, I mean, he has really picked up that aspect of his game, but I'm not going to go with that. I'm going to go with the word harness. Um, he needs to be able to harness his edge I'll say his edge, um, mentally, emotionally, between the points, um, without becoming some calm guy that we don't even know, um, or some, you know, chilled out guy. He's got to be able to harness that um, for the positive. And, and we've seen him do it time and time again, so he can do it again. Yeah, I think I like that harness and I like the way of the, I mean, obviously uh, the brisk early round matches, not, not, not that he needs, not that he's unfit, but I think he wants to just kind of like move through things efficiently, looking for depth, maybe a few volleys, you know, probably not that much addiction to the drop shot. You know, maybe that's the tell. So maybe the opposite of the key is the anti-key. So we see Novak doing something sure. too much is like uh, drop shots or missing first serves, but now, the way the game is set up now with 32 seeds and his familiarity with so many players, you can see him being fairly comfortable through the first few rounds. And then, and then it starts to thicken. And then we see, and then we have to see um, uh, how he continues to compete. But it seems, 
you know, he's so comfortable on hard courts. His game is so suited for contemporary tennis, the fitness, all this, and also the fact that these other players haven't made it exceptionally difficult for him. They've pushed him enough. Maybe they've pushed him just enough for him to know that he needs to be pushed, but not enough for him to think, oh God, I, why did I lose that French final to that guy? I beat that guy in the French final. I beat that guy in the Australian final. And Berrettini, I took care of you too. <laughs> so, and, and you, Sasha, really? You're, you're gonna beat me to try to win your first major after you lost here last year? Hmm, okay, I welcome that. You know, it's like, right. he's in such, and, he, and he's played enough. It is interesting though, uh, you know, he's won only one other tournament this year besides the majors. Yes. That's fascinating. I mean, usually. And he has not won a 1,000. Yeah. Usually yeah. he's racked up his share of others along the way, but such is the year and such is the world. And that, it's a little, it's a little sad. Obviously, it's worse for the world that we're in this pandemic, but it's a little sad for the tennis that he's on his way to possibly doing this incredible thing, but it's kind of clouded by a lot of other circumstances. Okay. Um what, so, so anti-key, you know, we're just going to leave it, Joel. We, we, that, that's okay. We didn't, we didn't need a, uh, like a, like a headline, like Joel's key. It's okay. We're going to take that, that for what it, <laughs> what, what it is. Uh, my, my key is, is for me, no hesitation, nerve management, handle the pressure. It's one or one or the other They're Maybe they're one in the same. Uh, I cannot remember so much pressure on a player since Serena, uh, so, so that is my key because if Novak is going to loosen up his shoulders and play his game, I think it's been very clear from what we've seen this year that, that, that he's the best in the world. But the question is, is he going to be able to handle the stakes and, and everything that's on his shoulders right now? That'll do it for this episode of three. Uh, we will uh, continue our coverage throughout the tournament a little bit scaled back in all likelihood. I'll be working the tournament for U.S. Open Radio. Um, and, and I'm sure we, we, we will all have a lot of content out there, some, uh, some writing from Amy and Joel as well. Uh, but we will continue the coverage a little bit less than normal. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Um, please leave a rating and a review on Apple. And if you're watching, like the video, subscribe, and leave a comment. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.